Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And um, I've decided to continue on just independently with uh, my Bible study series. Obviously, uh, no one at my church is really supporting my apologetics ministry right now. They've, they've shut it down and that sort of thing. But my pastor, my pastor at least, uh, privately supports this. And there's at least one other person at the church who supports it. And people outside, a few people outside the church have supported this series. So I, I think um, on that front, it's important that I continue on and finish, at, at the very least, to finish this series on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus um, independently, just so it's there for them who want it. And, you know, if, if people are enjoying it and liking it, this attempt to teach on a popular level, maybe I should keep it up and keep up my own Bible studies independently and that sort of thing. All right. So I right, just hang on one second. And okay. So that's what I want to do. I want to continue on with my series. This is going to be part three in the examination of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus just in time for Easter. And la uh, what we did last time, um, just summarizing the previous two Bible studies. So in the first one, we looked at, well, what is the resurrection? What does that entail? And essentially, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 44, and we assessed, is it going to be a physical or a non-physical resurrection body? And we determined that the Bible says we're going to have a spiritual, not in the sense of immaterial, but in the sense of spiritually good, mature, wise, you know, spiritual in relation to God, but it's still a physical body. We're also going to have glorious resurrection bodies. Then in our last Bible study, part two, we've looked at our the framework for this Bible study. It's the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 11 creed, which is the earliest of the oral creeds. This is something written in about 55 or earlier AD by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. But he's writing down an oral creed that goes back decades earlier, all the way back to 30 to 35 AD. The earliest Christians, Peter, Paul, uh, James, John, the son of Zebedee, and all, all the apostles in Jerusalem were saying this creed orally at their worship services. And this was put into Paul's letter 20 years later. Uh, and from this, we get all the evidence for the resurrection that we need. And there's the first fact that we looked at from this creed and established that was that the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, something that virtually all atheists, agnostics, and scholars of any stripe will admit this is the most firmly established fact in human history. Um, it is extremely well established historically, and we have scholarly consensus. You're extremely biased or radical if you deny this fact. So that's what we did last time. This time, um, I'm going to be moving on. So onto a theological thing, right? So you can see, for I delivered to you of uh, what was of first importance, that Christ died. So that's what we proved. We proved this happened last time, factually. But now I want to focus on this, the theological aspect. He died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. So there are two elements here that I'm focusing on in part three. The fact, what does it mean that he died for our sins? This is a theological aspect, not a historical one. Um, 
and it was done in accordance with the scriptures. Um, what does that mean? So that's what we're going to be looking at in the in this text, these two elements and assessing what these mean. Okay, so in the first place, um, Jesus died for our sins, right? He, his death provided atonement when he died on the cross. And we saw last in our last episode that atonement is a unique theological term. It's from a Middle English expression meaning at one mint, right? It, it's really talking about reconciliation or harmony and union. And specifically in a biblical context, well, that's harmony with God or union or reconciliation, one mint with God, between God and man. Because at the fall, there was a separation spiritually between God and man. Our sin separates us. We can't be reconciled to God. It is only through Jesus' death on the cross. That is the only way. No other religious pathways lead to this at-one-ment at one minute with God, according to Christianity, only through Jesus' death. That's how we achieve this at one minute. One path is what allows for this reconciliation. And obviously, in the, the biblical doctrine of, of reconciliation does, well, how is that accomplished? Well, it's because we are purified or cleansed of our sins through Jesus' death, right? Uh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Christ was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So his death and resurrection are linked. They're two sides of the same coin in terms of this atonement doctrine. But obviously, okay, great. So this is what the Bible says happened when, when he died for our sins. Okay, we understand what that means. It's saying he died so that we can be reconciled, purged of our sins or purified and cleansed of our sins so that we can be reconciled back with God again. But this raises the obvious question of, well, how is it that Jesus' death on a cross dealt with our sins? How, how does it provide the means of atonement at all? Um, you know, how, what, what role did it play or how did this work kind of mechanistically speaking almost? Well, uh, as it turns out throughout history, there have been various atonement theories um, that have been developed to kind of theologically understand how this process took place. Okay, so the first thing to understand is that Jesus' death takes place within a Jewish context of the Old Testament scriptures. And on that front, the New Testament is very clear that Jesus' death served as a sacrifice, just like the Old Testament animal sacrifices of goats, lambs, pigeons, and doves, and all that stuff. Um, the, the, there was the temple cult where we had these blood sacrifices. You killed an animal as a sacrifice in your place for your sins on Yom Kippur, for example, or on other uh, types of sacrifices. And in general, sacrifices in ancient Israel served two fundamental purposes. One was the expiation of sin, purging or purifying you of your sin. And the second was the propitiation of God, appeasing God and his wrath in some way. So, yeah, you can uh, kind of get that here. Um, and over the centuries, there have been various competing theories of the atonement that try to make sense of these two fundamental aspects and look at the atonement through the lens of, the, of Jesus being a sacrifice on our behalf. Now, 
we're going to assess about four of the main theories that have been, just to simplify things for you, just four theories, and we're going to look at those. And these all need to be assessed. Number one, how do they accord with the scripture? Are they consistent with what the Bible teaches about the atonement, first and foremost? And secondly, are they logically coherent and philosophically sound? Um, so let's get into that. So the first theory of the atonement, oh, hang on one second. Okay, so the first theory of the atonement is really the first the first one that came up chronologically in history. And for the first 900 years, from the time of Iri the early church father Irenaeus, he lived in the second century AD, about 150 years after Jesus, um, really up until the medieval period, the 1000s AD, the late 11th century, the main theory that all virtually all early church fathers believed was what was called the ransom theory of the atonement. And this was extremely popular back in these days. Um, and according to this theory, the sacrifice of Christ's life served as a ransom to deliver man from bondage to Satan and from the corruption of, uh, and death that were consequences of his sin and being in bondage or being held captive by Satan. There are various Bible verses that speak of us uh, being in bondage as sinners, estranged from God, unbelievers. We are in bondage to Satan. You know, Satan is the Lord of this world and that sort of thing. So the church fathers tended to interpret Bible verses like Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, the son of man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. They took that extremely literally, and they said, well, it's it's like the movie Ransom with Mel Gibson, right? They, they kidnap his son, they hold him hostage, and the daddy has to pay a million bucks to get his kid, his little kitty freed, his kid back, right? Um, well, this is literally how the atonement works under the ransom theory, um, under the, the original ransom theory, at least. Um we are held, human beings are held in bondage, sinners, as sinners, they're held in bondage by Satan. Satan is the evil bad guy, the, the kidnapper type thing. He's holding us hostage. And God has to pay the ransom. So he does that through Jesus dying on the cross. And it's basically kind of like a trick. You know, he, he thinks, uh, let's see if we, uh, okay, yeah, so I, I mentioned that, but so basically, the way it works is God tricked Satan, right? He he said, is like, well, look at this tempting piece of meat. It's me, God the Son in the flesh, the Son of God in the flesh, dying. He is becoming sin. He, he's yours. I'll offer you Jesus, but you give me all the rest of those sinners so that they can be reconciled to me. And Satan goes, oh, oh I'm going to get you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll take that deal. And like a fool, Satan does. Um, and uh, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 to 26 says, God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. They may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Uh, so yeah, this is just reinforcing what I was saying before, that we're, human beings are held in, held hostage by Satan under this original theory of the ransom theory. But uh, yeah, so God tricks Satan into making this exchange, Jesus, for the rest of humanity. But ah, here's the trick. Because Jesus is the son of God, he can't be captured. 
by or held by Satan. No, he, he blasts out and conquers Satan. So this is the first original version of the Christus, Christ victorious over Satan type view, this old ransom theory, right? And Christ defeats Satan, he rises from the dead, and bada boom, bada bing, God, God tricked Satan. He lost all of his sinners that he was holding captive, plus, or at least the ones who placed their faith in Jesus, and he loses Jesus. So... Yeah, you know, Satan was was kind of conned here. He, he thought, oh, well, because he's incarnate, Jesus is just as weak and vulnerable as other human beings. I can control Jesus. Little did he know that he couldn't, because once the Son of God manifested his full divine power, it was all over for him. So this was the original version that for centuries, the virtually all Christian Christians believed is how the atonement worked. Now, obviously, there are various problems with this theory, uh, the most blatant of which is that, well, no, sorry, Satan has no control over God or anything like that. It's God having to negotiate or pay a ransom to Satan. Uh, that's ridiculous. No, God is the Lord of the world. Uh, he's always in control. He always has the full power and that sort of thing. He doesn't have to pay a ransom to Satan. And in recent years, there have been modifications to the ransom theory or other views where Christ is victorious over Satan and that sort of thing. But yeah, oh, some people have tried to say, oh, well, the ransom is paid to God. Well, that doesn't make sense. Or, oh, well, the ransom is paid to divine justice, this abstract principle within God, you know, to his nature to satisfy the debts that justice demands. Um, you know, again, God being the grounding of justice because he has a just nature and that sort of thing. So that's what this verse is talking about. It's more metaphorical or something like that. So there have been updates on the ransom theory and there are these Bible verses. I think that we do have to admit this is part of the story, just not in the original literal way that they used to think whereby, Oh, well, God is somehow under Satan and has to pay a ransom to Satan. Um, to release sinners. That's the problematic part of this original ransom theory that I'm teaching you here. The next theory that came started in the medieval period by Anselm, the famous guy who made the ontological argument for God's existence, is known as the satisfaction theory. And Anselm, just like we said, look, it's absurd to think that God should owe anything, any ransom to Satan. No, that puts Satan above God. So instead, he thought that sin was somehow, uh, it has somehow dishonored God, right? Back in this time, they lived in honor-shame societies. You know, it's, it's detracted from God's glory in his perfect creation. And this has insulted him. It's dishonored him and his justice and his goodness and that sort of thing, right? So under the satisfaction theory uh, at this time, they say, look, the atonement is needed to satisfy or to appease God and his wrath and or really his need for divine justice. So Anselm held that there are two ways that the atonement of Jesus would, quote unquote, satisfy the demands for divine justice. You can either satisfy that through compensation or the other way is to satisfy it through punishment. And Anselm took the first path, right? He said, no, God would punish or something like that. Um, it's more the atonement works through compensation, 
when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied divine justice by compensating for the damage or the dishonor done to God um, through the fall of man, through us sinning and through our sins and that sort of thing. So it's important to note this is different than what Protestants say with penal substitution, right? Where most Christians today would, would take the second path. They would say, no, the, the way to satisfy divine justice would be through punishing the evildoer. You've got to punish the sinner, and that's how you make atonement. Uh, this medieval theory, the satisfaction theory, says, no, you didn't need to do that. Really, the way when Jesus died on the cross, he was just compensating for the sins done to Jesus in order to, to satisfy the demands of divine justice. So that's a, a key difference with this theory. Um, and how, well, how does that apply to us? Well, basically, as I said, Jesus was not punished per se, but he gave his life to God as a compens compensation or a gift that merits a reward from God, right? Oh, because you did this to compensate, you get a reward from God the Father. But Jesus is God. He has no need of any reward himself. And so, okay, given this reward, and what is the reward? We're talking eternal life here, right? And reconciliation or at one with God. Um and so what does Jesus do? Well, he then bestows it upon human beings who place their faith in him or, or get saved in the way that the New Testament specifies. So that's how the satisfaction theory works. Um, I hope that was clear. Okay, the third theory that we're going to look at is what's called the moral influence theory. And this theory of the atonement is associated with a 12th century Catholic logician and theologian named Peter Abelard. And what he says is, well, how did the atonement work? Well, look, in point of fact, Jesus' death and resurrection in and of themselves achieved nothing. They did not do anything to achieve reconciliation between God and man in themselves. Instead, how atonement is achieved is because it provides moral influence upon us. We see the example of Jesus, the love he had to die on, to give up his life for us on the cross. No greater love does someone have than to lay down their life for somebody else, right? This is what the Bible says. So atonement works by, look, we, we are moved. When we see Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we are moved within our hearts to contrition and love. And we follow his example as we contemplate how Christ voluntarily suffered death on our behalf. This causes us to kind of improve ourselves in order to be at one with God. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of Jesus' death on the cross itself, that did nothing to achieve. His blood is meaningless, does nothing. It's only instrumentally important in that it affects us when we think back, go, oh, that's so loving. We've got to be just like that. I'm going to follow Jesus' example. I'm going to be loving and, and stuff like that. And then, okay, I'm saved. Now I'm going to have him. But yeah, there was there was um, no sins were punished or compensated for um, with Jesus' uh, Jesus' sacrifice there. So yeah, it's the only power of the cross to make atonement really lies in it serving as an exemplar or an example for us. Um, and you know, the, the love and contrition that we need to have towards God and other people. Um, so in this case, the with the moral influence theory, one of the main problems here, look, God is not really the focus. It's not that 
God uh, doesn't uh, needs to something needs to happen for God to be reconciled to us. No, the the perspective is the other way around. We are the ones that matter. It's we that need to be influenced to reconcile with God. You know, it's not that God is separated from us. It's we've separated from God type deal. So it's kind of flipped. And I would say this is this is unbiblical, an unbiblical or unscriptural understanding here. Um, no, the, it's pretty clear that God needs to be the focus, right? The, he's the one that needs to be reconciled to us as sinners. And this is a major problem because, yeah, the moral influence theory taken in isolation it just seems to amount to some sort of self-improvement, you know, a self-help cult type thing, right? That, oh, you know, you can do it yourself. You you can achieve atonement. It's almost like a works-based salvation understanding whereby, I, you know, if I just will to do it, I, I just need a little prompting by Jesus dying, giving me an example. Okay, now I can do it all by myself. This is This is heretical. This is against the bible um even if i do think that there is some truth in that i hold to what in philosophy and ethics a, ver a view called virtue ethics as part of my normative ethical system these are complex words so I, i'm um i do believe that it's true jesus example plays a role right i mean the bible tells us why do we love well because god loved us first uh, that's how we are able to love God and to love others in turn. So there is some truth to the moral influence theory, but on its own, it is heretical. It, it cannot be the full story. And certainly it, it goes into error in thinking that, it, oh, we can just improve ourselves without the help of the Holy Spirit and without the need of, you know, without some kind of thing that happened on the cross when Jesus died for our sins to make to bridge that gap between God and man we can't bridge that ourselves only God can so that's where this thing is problematic so now we come to the final theory of the atonement that I think is essential and that we need to look at the penal substitution theory of the atonement now penal substitution theory is among the most popular theories of the atonement today Virtually all Protestants uh, agree with it and that sort of thing. And I think it's an essential and central element of any biblically adequate atonement theory. And it's based on three notions about sin. So number one, sin can be thought of as a debt of divine justice. It's something that we owe to God um, in terms of fulfilling our moral obligations and that sort of thing. Sin is a kind of, provides a mutual enmity between us and God. So it creates a gap, a separation that we cannot bridge on our own. And, you know, so it's not just that we are opposed to God, but that if God is opposed to us and our rebellion against him as well. God needs to be appeased in some way. Finally, sin has to be regarded as a crime that we've committed. And this carries with it punishment. So remember, this is di different than satisfaction theory that we looked up, looked at above, whereby, okay, well, he stressed the compens, this view stresses comp, Jesus' death was compensation. Well, no, on penal substitution, penal, Jesus is being punished for our sins. So atonement is achieved through a punishment, Jesus being punished 
as in our place, as a substitute for us as sinners. Um, so that's the important thing is Jesus is suffering punishment for sins in our place on the cross. Um, now, obviously, there's a, a major objection to penal substitution theory. And, and they'll, they'll say, well, how can this how can this satisfy uh, or appease divine the demands for divine justice? Because penal substitution is unjust. We're punishing innocent, sinless Jesus for my sins. Surely the sinner, you know, you do the crime, you do the time, right? This is how normal human beings normally think, right? If you're a murderer, you go to jail. I don't send your brother to jail, right? So, yeah, the, the obvious thing is, look, if Jesus was this morally perfect and innocent person, it is just unjust to punish somebody else for the sins of another. And in fact, the, the Bible itself in the Old Testament explicitly says this in certain cases, right? So how do we answer this objection? So in, in a nutshell, the answer to this is, well, number one, it, it's helpful to draw upon the justification for punishment as described in the philosophy of law, which is a field, a secular field of philosophy. And by understanding what philosophy, uh, sorry, why we punish people? What is the purpose of punishment? What what justifies our use of punishing someone? Sure, surely punishment um, needs to be justified. We can't just go around punishing people needlessly or something like that, right? So essentially, there are two fundamental perspectives on this. The first is retributive justice or retribution. This sees punishment in and, in and of itself as an inherently good, uh, sorry, punishing somebody, a, a sinner, is inherently good. Punishment itself is a good thing. Um, when we are punishing an evildoer, great, grand, and groovy, or specifically punishment uh, is punishment of the evil, the person who does the evil deeds for their evil deeds itself. The other perspective is a consequentialist understanding uh, perspective, right? So in this view, punishment is merely instrumentally good. In and of itself, punishing someone is a bad thing to do. We, we don't like, it's not ideal. We should never have to punish someone. No one should have sinned in the first place. But instrumentally speaking, it's good insofar as it achieves certain beneficial consequences. So, for example, when we throw a murderer in jail, we punish them. Well, why is that good? Well, it's not good because, yeah, we're eye for an eye. We're, get, we're getting retribution against that evil bad guy. No, the consequentialist would say, well, it's good because by throwing this guy in jail, number one, we detour other criminals from murdering people in the future. Or we quarantine this dangerous serial killer from society, we prevent him from committing more bads against other people. Or reformation of character, I think, is key in understanding the atonement. Uh, a lot of you know, a lot of things in consequentialists, unfortunately, with left-wing people or leftists today, it's all about the stress of, well, we need to reform the character of the sinner, the criminal. I think that's a great goal and it's a necessary and essential aspect relevant to the atonement right um jesus death on the cross somehow reforms the characters of 
of Christians, and we become more and more conformed to the character of Christ. So reformation of the criminal is important. Um, but that's not the only goal. We also have this goal that I think is what the retributionists are really after, and that's the reformation of the victim's character, the one who has sinned against God uh, or human beings who've been sinned against by, by a sinner in certain ways. They need to see punishment done so that their characters can be healed and reformed and healed from the effects of the sin done against them. And seeing justice done and the sinner being appropriately punished achieves that for the victims of sin or of a crime. Uh, so these are the four beneficial consequences that justify punishment that I can think of. And obviously we can see how this, you know, if you take a retributionist understanding of punishment, well, then how can we punish an innocent person in place of other people? Well, again, punishment is about the evil, punishing the evil deeds itself, and that's a good thing. And on that front, we have cases of vicarious liability, right? We punish innocent people, employers, for negligence or for the crimes that their employees commit sometimes. And that's perfectly legal. That's perfectly understandable and moral, um, whereby the employees are unable to pay the debt properly and that sort of thing. So if you take a retributionist understanding, maybe you see Jesus as taking on vicarious liability. And so long as that's voluntary on Jesus' part, he's saying, yes, I will become sin for these people, as the Bible says. Um, he's vicariously taking on that debt and paying it himself in our place. And your apologists like Ray Comfort all the time talking about, you know, it's perfectly legal to for somebody to say, oh, if you can't pay the fine, then your brother pays the fine for you on your behalf. Well, in that case, those evil deeds have been punished and the penalty has been paid. Um, it doesn't matter if your brother paid the fine or you. Uh, great, you can get out of here. You're, it's over with. Um, like I said, hotel managers, if somebody slips in a in a thing, well, we don't punish the janitor. We, we punish the hotel because the janitor can't afford to pay millions of dollars or something like that. So that's one way to look at Jesus' thing that makes sense and answers this objection about Jesus being innocent. How does it make sense for him to pay the penalty for my sins? The other way, the consequentialist way is, I think, so long as the consequences can be achieved, then it doesn't matter who pays the penalty. So in Jesus' case, right, the goal is to, ref one of the goals is to reform the character of the sinner. Well, this is why we, when we get punished, this reforms our character. But in, in the case of the atonement, Jesus is paying the penalty. So I'm not getting any of these benefits, right? Ah, well, that's where Protestants have the doctrine of sanctification. Remember, Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwell in our hearts. Jesus went through the punishments. When he dwells in our hearts mystically and, um, and sanctifies us, the process of sanctification, this is Jesus slowly but surely applying the benefits and reforming our character through what he, the penalty he paid on the cross. So he's able to reform our characters by dwelling in our hearts. And that's something that doesn't apply in the case of human justice, right? If I, if I murder someone and I send my brother 
to jail and serve it for 20 years, there's no way he can apply the consequent, the beneficial consequences of reformation of character to me. Um, in fact, we're just hurting him and I'm going to learn nothing and stuff like that. That's not the case with the atonement because even though Jesus pays the things because he's God and he dwells in our hearts, there is a way for him to apply the beneficial consequences of a reformed character to me by him, namely by him and the Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart and through what Protestants call the sanctification process. Um, so that's how it makes sense to punish it, um, especially since Jesus was doing so willingly. Um, so yeah, uh, that's those are the two types of answers I would give is if you take a retributionist stance, appeal to vicarious liability cases. If you take a consequentialist attack uh, on justice or on punishment, well, you can say, well, so long as the beneficial consequences can be applied um, to the sinner, then they don't they themselves don't need to be undergo the punishment kind of thing. So, yeah, that's how I would answer that. So, yeah, just closing out on the atonement theories here. Like I said, all the theories have issues when they're considered in isolation. Um, and that's why you can't just have any one single theory because all of them have problems. You need to modify them and update them. And I think that they fit together. It's kind of like a jewel or a diamond, a, mul a multifaceted diamond, right? So there is there are Bible verses that speak of Jesus' atonement as a ransom of sorts in a metaphorical way. So that's true. We take on board that. Um, it is to satisfy and appease God's wrath. There's a propitiatory aspect to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. There's also obviously penal substitution. You cannot get rid of that. That that's he's dying in our place and suffering the punishment for our sins. And this is one of the most loving acts that God has ever done in human history, if not the most loving act God has ever done in human history. Remember, he, Jesus suffered hell on that cross, spiritual death, not just physical death. The most loving thing anything anyone has ever done for another person in human history in history of the universe. Uh, so that provides a moral influence on us. We love because he loved us first. So all four of these theories have partial truth. And if we want to have a full, proper biblical theory of the atonement, we need to look at these various theories and aspects as focusing on different facets of a multifaceted diamond. The doctrine of the atonement is a multifaceted diamond. No single facet is the whole diamond. So, yeah, we need to look at all of these. And here's Dr. William Lane Craig kind of speaking and answering this question. It's a short clip until a six-minute clip, but let's hear him talk about these theories of the atonement that we've gone over and how they relate to each other. Okay. Now, what are the different theories of the atonement, and which one do you prefer? What are some of the issues you see with the others? There have been many theories of the atonement offered down through history to explain the fact that Christ died for our sins. We all agree with the fact of the atonement, that Christ died for our sins. But these theories try to explain how it works. One model that was popular in the early centuries of church history was the so-called Christus Victor model, that is Christ the Victor. And the idea here was that Christ 
by his incarnation, passion, and death, conquered Satan and freed us, liberated us from the bondage to death, uh, corruption, sin, and hell, so that Jesus is a sort of liberator uh, of humanity from our bondage. Another theory is the moral influence theory, that Christ's passion and death showed us the extent to which God would go to reconcile us to himself, and thereby serves to enkindle in us, in turn, a, a flame of love for God, so that the moral influence of Christ's death serves to draw people to repentance and faith in Christ. And that would be a second theory of the atonement, the moral influence theory. Another theory would be the so-called satisfaction theory. And according to this model, we have besmirched God's honor by sin, and thereby we owe God an infinite debt of compensation for having wronged him, which we are incapable of paying. And therefore, Christ became a man, and since he was sinless, he had no debt of his own to pay, but by the offering of his life to God, it is a kind of infinite compensatory gift that he gives to God um, on our behalf and thereby uh, pays our debt that we owe. And then the model that the Protestant reformers offered was called penal substitution. And this model differs from the others in that it says that we were guilty before God for our sins and therefore deserving of punishment. And none of us could therefore be forgiven and pardoned by God without that punishment being satisfied. And so Christ took on human nature, and again, because he was sinless, he could uh, offer to take that punishment upon himself in our place. And so Christ paid the penalty for the sins of the human race, thereby enabling God to offer us a free pardon of our sins and reconciliation to God. Now, I personally think that a full-orbed theory of the atonement is like a precious jewel that is multifaceted and includes all of these different elements as facets of a full atonement theory. Now, where did you get that idea from of sort of combining them all together? Was that something you came to? Did you read that? It's somewhere? not original with me, I think, for a long time. It reminds me of Fleming Rutledge in her work on the death and the crucifixion. Right. She mentioned something along the same lines. Yes, this isn't a new idea. I think for some time, theologians have realized that all of these different atonement theories have a contribution to make, and they're based on motifs that are found in the New Testament. They're all affirmed there. And so it seems like a multifaceted model is the only way to go to have a full and adequate biblical atonement theory. Where does the ransom theory fit in here? Is that another theory that we that have That is a version of the Christus Victor 
theory. Interesting. Not all Christus Victor theorists hold to the ransom theory, but a few did, like the Church Father Oregon. And what he held was that we were imprisoned by Satan, and therefore a ransom had to be paid to Satan to set us free, much as a kidnapper might be paid a ransom to let his victim go. And so these church fathers believed that Satan, because of our sin, had a rightful claim to us, and that God therefore paid Christ to Satan as a ransom payment to let us go. But what Satan didn't realize was that this was the Son of God. He was not a mere human being, and so he could not be held by Satan. And so after having let all his human victims go, Christ then bursts the bonds of Satan because Satan had no claim over him being sinless. And so Satan was thereby uh, tricked, as it were, and uh, robbed of all his victims. There's not very many contemporary theologians who would hold to the ransom theory anymore because it makes the object of Christ's death Satan rather than God, which just seems misconceived. Uh, and so those who hold to a Christus Victor theory today would generally do so without the element of the ransom being paid to Satan. So there's that clip for you guys on how the theory is by Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the foremost Christian apologists and philosophers in the entire world today. Um, yeah, I agree with his take. I, I think that um, we have to take this multifaceted approach to the theory of the atonement. So, okay. So before we move on though, uh, and finish the Bible study, it's not just that Christ died for our sins. So we covered the theological, what does that mean for our sins? How does that work? How does he atone for our sins? There's also this interesting thing here. In accordance with the scriptures, Messian, is there a scripture that says that Christ would die or die for our sins? The Messiah would actually die? What, what's that about? And on this front, there are indeed uh, multiple Messianic prophecies, some of which the New Testament itself quotes, that prove that part of the Jewish Messiah's mission would be to suffer and to die. And on this front, um, evangelical biblical scholar, Dr. Michael Brown, one of the world's experts on the Old Testament, uh, as an Old Testament scholar there, he definitely provides some proof of this. So I'm just going to play a couple clips uh, from him talking about Isaiah chapter 53, predicting the death of the Messiah. And Psalm 22 predicts that Messiah's death by crucifixion uh, um, itself. Kind of thing. So let's look at Isaiah 53 first, up to 2253. Okay. We're told Isaiah 53 cannot refer to Jesus because the servant, it says the servant of the Lord was sickly and died of disease. It's possible that some of the words could be taken to mean that, that he was smitten with sarat or leprosy, severe skin disease, that God made him sick. Those words could could say that absolutely or those just, words so just so you know uh, what he's starting out this is a jewish objection to the isaiah 53 prophecy about jesus uh, the messiah as the servant of the lord and they say okay well, maybe it's saying he would die but it's saying he would die by disease so that jesus didn't die by disease he died by crucifixion so 
Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown here is starting out responding to this objection. And then he finishes off talking about how it predicts absolutely the Messiah would die, suffer and die for our sins. Words could be used metaphorically as they are sometimes in the Hebrew scriptures, just for meaning being smitten. In other words, Nagua could just be smitten rather than smitten with a specific plague. And when it speaks of God making him sick, it could also mean make him weak, weak or afflict him. And this, of course, is what happened. Bear in mind also he carried the sins and the, the burdens and the pains and the sicknesses of the nation. Surely he's carried our sicknesses and bore our pains. So there was a deep sense of him carrying this on himself, but he himself did not become physically sick according to the accounts. Rather, he carried the weight, the pain, the burden, the sorrow, the sin of the nation, and then he was terribly beaten, disfigured, and, and afflicted by God with the sin of the world and with the punishments that he endured for our sin. So no, it does not have to refer to actual physical sickness. Some would say Isaiah 53 does not actually say that the servant would die. We know it's interesting when rabbinic interpreters say that it refers to Israel, it refers to death there, doesn't it? They'll talk about all the different ways that the Jewish people have died through the ages. Oh, but when it refers to the Messiah, it doesn't speak of him dying? So hang on. When it, when it uses specific phrases, when, here, here, look at this. When it says, 53.7, he's brought us a lamb to the slaughter. 53.8, he's cut off from the land of the living. 53.9 speaks of his grave and his death. 53.10 says he'll be offered up as a guilt offering. 53.12 says he poured out his life unto death. How else are you going to say it? He died. He died. The text is quite explicit. Well, then the objection, well, maybe, but it doesn't say he's going to rise from the dead. Well, it does say. All right, so I'm going to, that will be for a future podcast. Uh, but obviously, Isaiah 53 not only predicts the Messiah's death, it also predicts his resurrection. And we'll get into that in a future Bible study when we get to the next one about the empty, the burial and empty tomb. Okay, um, now here's a, a quick clip, five minute clip or so on Psalm 22, talking about his death, but also hinting at death by crucifixion specifically, uh, piercing of his hands and feet. What about they pierced my hands and feet? The New Testament misquotes that. The New Testament gets it wrong. Actually, I was doing a TV debate many years ago in Florida. There were two Messianic Jews, myself, so three of us, and then three rabbis, an Orthodox rabbi, a conservative rabbi, reform rabbis. It's quite an interesting mix. The Orthodox rabbi was a Hasidic rabbi, ultra-Orthodox Jew, and as we were having this debate, there was, there was a live audience there watching it. He says the New Testament misquotes the Psalms, and it says they pierced my hands and feet, but the Hebrew says like a lion they're at my hands and feet. And I said to him, uh, that's not quoted in the New Testament. Now Psalm 22 is quoted in the New Testament. They, 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 they cast lots from my garments and divided them. That happened to Messiah on the cross, never happened to David. Never happened to David. And, and Yeshua hanging on the cross quotes it in, in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Aramaic is as transliterated in, in the Greek. In Hebrew, Eli, Eli, Lama Zavtani. Why have you forsaken me? He draws our attention to Psalm 22. But that verse, they pierced my hands and feet, isn't even quoted in the New Testament. The question is, is it accurate? 
Many Christian translations have it. We'll look at that. So first thing I want to point out is that the sufferings that are spoken of here in Psalm 22 really transcend anything that David experienced. It looks like he's given over to death. It looks like he's being abandoned by God. And people are mocking him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. These very words of scorn were heaped on Yeshua as he hung on the cross by the religious leaders. Oh, yeah. Son of God. Oh, yeah. Where's God to deliver you now, boy? This is what happened. And yet the psalmist expresses his confidence in God that you're the one who took me from the womb. And he says this in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their, their mouths at me like a, a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, stung my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, all that literally happened to Yeshua. Well, it works wonderfully well when Messiah now takes it on himself and brings that psalm to fulfillment. But what about they pierce my hands and my feet? Actually, this is not a Jewish Christian issue. It's a Jewish-Jewish issue, to tell you the truth. Let me explain. The vast, vast, vast majority of our Masoretic texts, there is not one Masoretic text, but thousands of manuscripts in the Masoretic textual tradition. The vast, vast majority read Ka'ari Yadavaragwai. Like a lion, my hands and feet. Now, the, the problem, the, the problem is, is this, that when you look at it contextually, it, something seems to be missing. So let's, let's just look at this together, all right? So, so we start back, he, he, he's, he's poured out to death, his, his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth, kisvavuni klavim, Dogs have surrounded me, Adant Mereim, Hikifuni, an assembly of, of the wicked encompasses me, Kariya Daivraglai, like a lion, my hands and feet. Well, Rashi says, like a lion, they're mauling his hands and feet. Well, that works for me. Fine. Like a lion, they maul my hands and feet. If it means like a lion, it doesn't mean licking. Like a lion, they lick my hands and feet. No, no, they maul, they tear, they, they bite, scratch. So that, that would be an excellent description of what happens in crucifixion. But, but, the oldest translation that we have of these words is the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And it renders with they, they pierce or they bore through. That's interesting. Then, the oldest Hebrew manuscript we have of this, a copy of the Psalms, this part of the Psalms from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, it has a vav instead of a yud. It's very close in Hebrew, but... But those studying it carefully recognize it's a yud ka'aru, which would also be something like they, they dug through or bore through. Hmm. And then there are a number of manu Masoretic manuscripts, just a handful, but a number that also read ka'aru or ka'aru. Again, they dug through, bore through. So the oldest translation, the oldest manuscript, and some Masoretic predictions read a verb that would be more like they bore through or they dug through my hands and feet. So either way, either like a lion, they maul my hands and feet, 
or they, they dug through, bore through, which would be pierced. That's how we get pierced, my hands and feet. Either way, a very, very vivid description that would find fulfillment in the crucifixion. But I just ask you a question. All right, so that, that's good enough uh, kind of thing, right? So you can see Jesus' death by crucifixion itself, you know, his hands being mauled like a, like a lion, pierced or dug and borne out. Perfect descriptions of what would happen when they pound those nails into your hands and feet during crucifixion, just like what Jesus the Messiah went through. So this is incredible. Yep, we have absolute uh, confirmation here that uh, Jesus, whereas the, the text, Jesus, we proved last time Jesus died on the cross as a historical fact. In this one, we said, and we went over what it means for him to have died on the cross for our sins. And now we've just proved that it was in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, as well as elsewhere. So all of this part of the creed has just been confirmed. Uh, next time, we will look at the evidence, the historical evidence for the fact of the burial and empty tomb of Jesus and uh, look over that and how that relates to him being raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Are there Messianic prophecies about his resurrection as well? So that's what we'll look at next time. And thank you for listening. All right. That's it.